0: Amen. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Good morning. So glad you're with us. I love our family. I've been looking forward to being with you as a whole family. I mean, I keep thinking of it this way. I don't know how you've thought of it with our city groups, but I think of city groups sort of as our small family, and this is our big family. And I love being with both at different times. And I I love this. And so I'm so glad to be with you this morning. So thankful for Lawrence. He had so much energy this morning. He forgot he needed a microphone, and I'm not even sure we did, right? He was so loud, he could, he could do it without a microphone. But anyway, I love Lawrence and love our team. So thankful for uh, the family of God that we have at South City Church. If you're new to us, my name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad you're with us. Hope that you feel like part of our family today. We are going to be studying the Word of God today. This is something that is uh, the highest value for us at South City, and we've been in a series in the book of Mark. Today we're going to start in chapter 7, so if you have your Bible, you can begin to turn that way, and we can begin to to think about that. Before we get there, let me ask you, let me set up a scenario for us. What if today, when you left here, somebody followed you home, and as they followed you, they they, they went in the house with you, and, and you notice they had a clipboard, and they were kind of looking a little judgy, right? You know what I mean when I say judgy? I'm not sure that's a word, but they're a little judgy. We all had judgy people. And so they're walking around, they're kind of looking at you like, oh, and you see them make some notes. And they're like, oh, boy. You're driving home and they make some notes. Oh, oh gosh. It'd be kind of creepy, wouldn't it? If somebody was looking over your shoulder and looking deeply into your life over the next 24 hours about how you could get in trouble or mistakes that you might make, something you might say, something that you might do, it would be discouraging, I think, Right? Yeah, it would be. In fact, I think they would start writing stuff on me before we even got to the parking lot because I'm a sinner saved by God's grace and I make mistakes as a human being, right? And yet that scenario is exactly what we're going to see in our story today with the Pharisees and Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn over with me to chapter 7. We know that that Jesus has had some run-ins with the Pharisees before in our study in Mark. And today, we're going to see uh, the, the conflict really come down to a few different things, but we're going to start with this idea of tradition versus law, all right? Verse 1, chapter 7 says this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? You just feel the judginess, right? You just feel the judgment. We're going to get you on something. If we can't get you, Jesus, we're going to get somebody close to you. And that's exactly what we see in our reading this morning. We're going to go all the way through verse 23, but let's stop right now and just ask the Lord to open our hearts and reveal his truth to our, to our hearts. Can we do that? Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we just stop right now. Um, God, we, we pray that you would help us today. As we read your word, as we study your word, as we try to unpack the truths of your word, I pray, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would lead us to all truth. God, I pray that you'd help me to decrease in this time. I have nothing good to bring, God, apart from you, Jesus, and apart from what your word would speak to your people. So I pray that you would increase in our presence. And God, I pray that you'd give us courage to look deeply into the mirror today into the, to the fruit of our lives and say, Lord, who are we worshiping? Is it you or is it us? And I pray, Father God, that you would do a work in us as a church, as individuals who want to love you and know you more. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So I don't know how your Bible describes this story, but right out of the gate it says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him. Some of your translations literally say that they were gathered or standing around him. That may be what your translation says. And it gives a little sense of kind of what is going on here. These Pharisees, uh, most likely from Capernaum, right? Uh, And these uh, scribes have come from Jerusalem, just that alone right there, right? These are people from the local area in Capernaum, but also scribes from Jerusalem, so those, those people are those that are, they're really going to get him in trouble. They're going to be able to, to look at the letter of the law and see where Jesus is making his mistakes. So they've come all the way from Jerusalem. It's a long way, especially when you're walking from Jerusalem or riding on a, on a donkey or a horse or something. It's a long way. But they've come to catch Jesus in some infraction of the tradition of the elders or the law. Now I'm going to make a point here in a minute that those two aren't the same thing. And we're going to look at that in just a second but there's automatically out of the gate, there's, a, there's an element of intimidation. The Pharisees and the scribes are standing around Jesus. Huh, right? Have you ever felt that before? I, I played football in junior high and high school and, and there were different times where I would make a tackle or do different things and you get up and sometimes people aren't happy with you and some of the players are standing over the top of you, right on top of you and it's intimidating. You're like, you know, you have to push them back or you try to get out of the situation. If you've ever felt that, it's an intimidating feeling because people are just standing on top of you, trying to make you feel something. And that's exactly what these Pharisees were doing with Jesus, they're trying to intimidate him and catch him in something. Now what's interesting is the text says they don't catch Jesus, do they? Who do they catch? They catch the kiss disciples. And what they catch them in, they think, is the fact that they haven't washed their hands. Now, if you're not careful, you can read this and you go, oh, these old fishermen, man, they're just, they're gross. They're they're eating with dirty hands. And you kind of get this mental picture. Not the case. What's happening here is not that they're dirty people eating with dirty hands necessarily. They're not washing their hands with all the rigmarole and all the the processes and, and religious Uh, perfunctory duties that the Pharisees have placed on all people. They don't do it the way we do it. Therefore, they're wrong. There's a big difference. Disciples haven't just come to eat with dirty hands. No, they're just not doing all the things that the Pharisees do and and want all people to do. It's a kind of a big deal. You remember the story in Mark we were talking about uh, where Jesus and the disciples are walking through the grain field? Remember that one? And the disciples start pulling some grain off of the, the, the field, and they're eating, and, and it's on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees try to get them again, remember? And they said, hey, hey they're eating on the Sabbath, and they're, they're, they're threshing, and they're crushing, and they're doing all this work to eat on the Sabbath. We, we looked at that, and we realized that actually that wasn't against the law. It was against their tradition. In fact, the the, the Lord's word made a provision for people who needed grain walking through a grain field. So they were even being obedient to God's word. And yet these Pharisees were trying to call them out on some sort of sin. Notice again that both that instance and this instance have to do with dietary restrictions and how you eat. This is one of the major controlling pieces that the Pharisees like to have over people. Let's watch what they're doing. Let's watch when they're doing it. Let's watch how they're doing it so that we can call them out on it and we can control the people. Their heart was to control. And Jesus keeps banging heads in in a way with these Pharisees, and they have these issues back and forth. Because Jesus is calling people to freedom and God's law, not to some tradition of the elders or tradition of man, right? Right? So I also want to bring your attention. As you're looking at the text, you notice a parenthetical section. Do you see that? So when you read something, as we get into it, you see there's a section in parentheses. This is what's happening. Mark is trying to give some information to his audience. Do we remember who his audience is? Right. These are believers in Rome. Gentile believers in Rome who don't know Jewish things. So Mark is trying to break down for these Gentile believers in Rome this understanding of how Jews act and the situation in Jerusalem. And so you have to see that in that way. Try, he's trying to help them understand w- what's going on. Why, why was it such a big deal to wash your hands in a certain way? He's trying to give explanation ex- uh, uh, to that. And what, why would this happen this way? So he does that in a couple of times in our text, and we'll explain that. But he's, he's basically trying to help them understand the hypersensitivity That these Pharisees have to their rules and control over people. Every time people sit down several times a day to eat, just imagine, sometimes at our house, we have yo yo nights. You have that? You're on your own. I don't know if you ever, you can adopt that if you'd like. You're on your own, figure it out. Maybe cereal, maybe a hot dog, but you're on your own, yo yo nights. And uh, so it happens pretty uh, nonchalantly. It's pretty casual around our house at times, right? Not for the Jews. They had to wash, if they, if they came from the marketplace, there was a whole set of rules that they had to do to wash and get ready and do all these things, according to the Pharisees. It was very uh, stifling environment, and every day, many times a day, where they could be judged and even brought under condemnation, but it was their tradition, it wasn't God's law, right? So I want us to look for a moment at the difference of what is God's law in this text and What is tradition? Now, God's law does have uh, something about the priest washing their hands in a certain way. So if you're a rabbi, you need to wash your hands in a certain list of of directions. By the way, notice they didn't catch Jesus. wonder why. He was a rabbi. I think it's because he probably followed God's law. So here they don't catch Jesus, they catch his disciples who are not rabbis. And the law only pertains to rabbis. So they're following God's law, but they're not following what the Pharisees bring out. They call it the tradition of the elders. Now, the tradition of the elders is something that basically had uh, it was a bunch of additional rules added to God's law. Not truly God's law, but it was, traditionally, it was these different traditions and rules added to the law over 500 years from the time of Babylonian cap- captivity. They had just added all these different things to sort of protect God's law. And they had gotten to the place where they were just absolutely ridiculous and silly. And what had happened is the Pharisees had forgotten what mattered most, which was God's law, not the tradition of men. right? And so that is exactly what's happening here. We have God's law, which is for, for rabbis to watch, but not people in that way. People didn't have some law, so they're not breaking the law in the first place. But they are breaking the tradition of men. And it is a man-made religion that Jesus calls them out on. What does it mean to us? What it means is that it's important for us to make sure we have a clear understanding of truly what is God's law, what is God's command for his people, and what is our tradition and our preference, and to not let the two intermingle. See, the, the Pharisees had conflated these two. They said tradition of, of the elders is the same as God's law. And therefore, if you don't do the tradition of the elders, we'll punish you the way God's law says to. But that wasn't God's law. That was the tradition of men. We do the same thing, don't we? We figure out what's important to us. We find moments and things that are so valuable and even sacred to us, and we want to hold them in high esteem of sacredness and spirituality and things that matter so much. But if we really look at them, the question is, are those God's commandments, are they just our traditions, preferences, opinions? We all do it. We all do it. It's part of our sin nature, and we're going to see different times in history that we've done it as as a people. But Jesus here is calling these Pharisees out of their hypocrisy. And what he's gonna do now is he's gonna compare what's counterfeit, which is what they are, with what's authentic, which is what he and his disciples are. Right? You know what I'm talking about. This Is just for show? Or no, this is really from our hearts. Mark 7, verses 6 through 9. Read with me. It says, uh, He said to them, Well, Did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Now, what Jesus is referring to here when he mentions Isaiah is that Isaiah 29 speaks of a prophecy, and Jesus basically quotes it right here. And what's interesting is Jesus is saying that prophecy is about you, Pharisees, right? Maybe you've read that before, Pharisees. Well, now I can tell you he wrote it about you. And it's not a nice word. It's not a nice compliment. He says, this people, these, these people I'm looking at, the Pharisees, They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is a scathing indictment. This is a rebuke to people who have made their faith and their position about what they can gain and how they can skirt around the laws of God and yet judge other people. This is what they're doing, and Jesus is bringing it out. He says, because your hearts are counterfeit, When you you say you're worshiping, it's in vain. It means nothing. It's useless. It's empty. Why? Because you're worshiping your own rules instead of God's. You've come up with what's important to you, and then you live by those. Does that sound familiar? Oh, it's convicting. You created what's important to you, and you said, no, this is sacred. This, This is important, and I will live by these things and stand by these And yet, when we look at it, go, oh, is that really what God commanded? We do the same thing. Jesus is not mincing words here. He's calling them out for their hypocrisy, for how they lie. And this is going to get him in trouble over and over. This is going to lead to an ultimate clash, we know, in Jerusalem. What can we learn from Jesus' rebuke to these Pharisees, Right? When we look at our own lives, I have to say there have been different moments this week where I went, whoo, you're a Pharisee. <laughs> That's who you are. That's who I am. There are moments where I live as a Pharisee and I hold up my standards that may or may not have anything to do with God. They're just my preferences, my traditions, uh, my thoughts. In fact, this whole idea hits really close to home to me. I've mentioned this several times. I'll continue to because it's my story. It's my Uh, It's the grace of God in my life. But I was counterfeit. I was fake. I did not stand or live or care about the things of God, yet I portrayed that I did. I said things with my lips about God, and my heart was far from God. I did things here in this building with some of you to try and impress some of you my whole life in different ways so I could seem a certain way and my heart was not there for that mission, for that purpose. It was selfish. It was for me. I was living according to really what I wanted, what was important to me. So I have to ask us this question. I'm grateful for God's grace and I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. But I gotta ask this question of all of us now. Do you say one thing about your life in Christ? Or your faith, and yet live another. All smiles here, but when I go home, I've got a porn addiction. Maybe some of you are saying that. All smiles here, but when I go home, I've got a gambling problem. When I go home, I, I don't treat my family, my spouse, the way God would have me to treat them. I, I, I want you to think I'm here, but really, I'm here, and I'm a mess. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You've you've prettied up the outside. You've made it look amazing, but inside your heart, it's dead things. It's death. It's rotten. It's not consistent. Do you hold up what's sacred to you, whether it's sacred to God or not, and yet you stand on your opinion or you stand on your tradition Instead of your heart being humble, tender, and obedient to God, because that's what he's calling us to. Friends, if we're not careful, we can fall into this reality of self-centered idolatry. We don't use that word a whole lot, but that's what it is. Self-centered idolatry as opposed to Christ-centered, humble obedience. God just wants us to be obedient because when we obey, we're saying, Lord, I trust you and I trust your word, and I just want to fall into what you have for me because it's the best, the best life I could possibly live is a life in obedience to you, surrender to you, knowing and loving you and making you known. And yet, as human beings, what we do is we create another worship system, something we value more than God, and it's called idols. Look with me in Verse 10. It says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. He, Jesus here is going to give an example of how they're, they're doing this. Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, uh, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void The word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do so Jesus here is giving an example this is a grace really to them to say I've just called you you know a hypocrite but let me show you where you're a hypocrite and he takes the fifth commandment honor your father and mother And then he takes uh, the the punishment for not obeying the fifth commandment out of Leviticus and says, when you don't obey or or honor father and mother, then you should be stoned. That was the law. But what the Pharisees had done has this this Hebrew word korban, which means that if they've committed something to God, then they don't have to live up to their end of uh, obedience to God's commandment. So here's an example. This is what they would do, and this is the example Jesus gives. If father and mother are in need, maybe they're starving, maybe they have financial needs, and a Pharisee says, Well, if you're expecting something from me to help you, I've committed that to God. Then that's dishonoring to father and mother. The law says they should be stoned. But the tradition of man, right? The tradition of the elder says, Oh, if you said Corbin, then you're out, it's a loophole. You get out of that situation. Now you don't have to be stoned. In fact, there was such a loophole and such deception that they could say it's Corbin and not even give it to God. Just the fact that they said it was Corbin and it was given to God or committed to God and still never be punished for disobeying God's commandment. You see what they're doing? And then I like how Jesus in a side statement says, and there's many things you do like this right? This is just one example of what you do. We do that, don't we? Don't we come up with loopholes? Don't we come up with deals with God where we place our tradition or our convenience over God's command? Well, I'll do this this time and I'll do that next time. I'll make this promise this time and I'll fulfill it here. I'll give this here and not give it here. Instead of just going, Lord, I just want to simply obey because I trust you fully. Instead, we begin to find loopholes ourselves. We do the same thing that the Pharisees are doing here. God calls us to simple obedience to his word. And when we are not obedient, basically what we're doing is making life about us. And when we're making life about us and our opinions and our preferences and how this can benefit me we begin to fall into idolatry. Remember the story of the Israelites, the bottom of Mount Sinai. Moses is at the top of the mountain. Literally, all they had to do was look up and they could see the cloud of God surrounding the mountain. Moses, within the cloud, going to get the Ten Commandments. All they had to do was just stay, pray, right? Just just be content. What do they do? They begin to who's got gold? You got some gold rings, earrings? Let's see who's got it, because surely we gotta worship something. All they had to do was look up and see the God of the universe in his presence around the mountain. And that yet somehow they fashion in that time a gold calf to worship. Friends, we do the same thing. No matter if you can see God, no matter if he's worked in your life or not, how often we fashion things that are so important to us, we place them ahead of God, the God of the universe who's been so faithful and so good. I think about that example and I go, how could they do that? And yet, we do the same thing. Traditions can be a blessing. My family has traditions, our church has traditions, there are things that are traditional in ways that we love and it can be a blessing but if they begin to take place of God's word, if they begin to be confused with God's commandment or his plan, then we have to let traditions go and follow God's commandment. Warren Weersby says this in his book, Be Diligent. We must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in the light of God's word and be courageous enough to make changes. Every generation begins to do this. We begin to place things that are more important to us than just following God's word. We begin to do things, even in our our time, our extra time, our, our worshiping time, that seem like sacred things, and we have to begin to look objectively, Lord, what is your word? What is the truth of your word? Because Jesus here is pointing us to authenticity. This is, this is what Jesus is trying to get us to. He's saying, where is your heart? Because what your heart is about is more important than what you say. But what comes out of your heart, the fruit of your life, is more important than what you hope people see. No, let, pe- let what comes out of your life be true and authentic. So Jesus here, he's making a commotion with these Pharisees. Now you can imagine one day of your life you're, you're literally... Cowtailing everything around these Pharisees and how they can hurt you or, or control your life. And all of a sudden, now there's somebody who's standing up to them, holding, holding down an, a real argument. And they're shocked. And there's just this silence in the air with Jesus standing up against these men and showing them truth. So there's a commotion and people are around. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now going to turn his attention from his rebuke of Pharisees to a parable for the people he wants to teach right so he, he, he gathers them to himself and he wants to teach the, the importance of spiritual over physical verse 14 and he called the people to him again and he said to them hear me all of you and understand this there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus, look at the parenthetical here again. Thus he declared all foods clean." And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. All right, so let's go to the moment. Jesus has been in an argument with the Pharisees. He's gotten a lot of people's attention. Jesus realized this can be a teachable moment. But what I love about Jesus and these parables, and he's explained why, he's not going to spend a ton of time explaining it. So he just floats out there, this parable, very quickly. What goes into your body doesn't defile it. It's what comes out that does. All right, have a good day. All right. And, and you can just feel this pregnant pause from the moment of awkward sparks that are flying between Pharisees and Jesus to him turning to everybody, hey, listen to this. Like There's this moment of Jesus kind of going, listen and learn. And everybody's like, okay, we're, all right, leaning in. What goes into the body doesn't defile it. It's what comes out. All right. And they're just standing there. Jesus goes into a house, most likely there in Capernaum. Most likely they are, we know they're in Galilee, they've walked from Gennesaret probably back to Capernaum, and they're probably at Peter's house. So he just kind of ditches into the house, and he leaves this question, this parable, this argument, and what's so crazy and pregnant about the whole thing is the fact that it goes completely against what the Pharisees are trying to call Jesus out for. They're all about being careful what goes in. They're all about how you prepare what goes They're all about that. Jesus is trying to lead them somewhere. He's trying to teach them something. So he goes into this house, and the disciples want to know the deeper lesson. I like how Jesus says, are you also without understanding? This is the way the, the message <laughs> paraphrases that. The message says, uh, are you being willfully stupid? There's a sense that Jesus going, do I have to explain this to you too? But, of course, in his grace and his love, he does. He explains it. He goes deeper. He clarifies that the physical which goes into the stomach is not the same. What matters is the spiritual that comes from the heart. I mentioned when I was reading it this other parenthetical thing, and I think it's important, and I think it has to do with all of what the Lord wants to teach us today. He he says in this little parentheses moment that Jesus states that all foods are clean. Right now, I think it's interesting here because does anybody? Mark is not one of the twelve disciples. Right? We everybody understand that. Mark was one of the ones that accompanied Paul on a missionary journey. Mark was the son of Mary who had a church in her house that met in Jerusalem. It was the house where Peter and John come back to, and this. So this is a this is a neat reality of who John Mark is he's not a disciple but does anybody, so he doesn't really know what was happening while he's he's getting all of his information from someone else anybody remember who that is it's Peter he was very close to Peter and so all of his eyewitness testimony for the gospel of Mark is coming from Peter does anyone remember the hard lesson that Peter had to learn in acts 10 Peter was a Jew, right? Peter lived as a Jew. And so he's, he's, uh, he's hungry, the text says. And actually, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter. It's fascinating. He's hungry, and he sort of falls into a trance, a daydream kind of a thing. And as he's hungry, the Lord shows him this sheet that is let down. And on the sheet are all these foods, things that are unclean for the Jew. And the Lord says, eat it. You can eat these things. Kill these things and eat these things. That's what he says. And Peter says no to the Lord, remember? And so God says it again two more times. This is how thick-headed Peter can be and I can be. So the Lord's saying over and over until Peter finally begins to get it. And in the, the trance, the Lord says, now go downstairs and go with the men who are at the, de- at the door. Fascinating. So Peter goes downstairs, and at the door are some soldiers who belong to Cornelius, who the Lord had shown himself to in a way and said, send these men to Peter. So Peter goes with these men to Cornelius, and he's at Cornelius' house. And before he even enters the house, he says to the whole group, he says, you know, it's not lawful for me to go into your home. It wasn't lawful for a Jew to walk into another nation's, a uh, person of another nationality into their home." And so Peter, again, you can just see the struggle in Peter's heart of going, I'm a Jew and you're Gentiles and oh boy. Peter's struggling with the first covenant law. And yet God is trying to help him understand that you are now under a new covenant of Jesus, right? You're now under this new covenant. And so Peter goes into the home and and he, he sees the Lord uh, move in miraculous ways. And he says this in Acts 10, 34. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly I understand. It's like finally, ding, 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 finally Peter gets it. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality right, to Jew or Gentile, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What's being shown here to Peter on the roof, through the trance, and also now in the home of Cornelius, is that God has a plan. It is that the old covenant is passing away, and the new covenant has come in Jesus, and he wants to save all people everywhere. And and food is a part of that because it, it speaks to such an important piece of the old covenant. And it's a way that the Lord is breaking down the understanding of the old covenant for Peter and Jews. And doing a new thing. Hebrews in chapter 8 says that the old covenant, the law, was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. It's a pattern of what God was going to do. The new covenant, the Bible says, makes the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews ten nine uh, b and 10 says, He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is what he's alluding to here, right? The new covenant is not about rules. It's not about regulations, external things. It's about Christ on a cross meeting every requirement, keeping every rule, and then being our sacrifice for us, providing a way for our salvation now what he's, what he's getting to is the condition of your heart. Pharisees, it's not about the bowl that you're using. It's not about how you're washing your hands. It's about your heart. And let me tell you something about your heart. And can I also add this? About your heart. And especially about this heart. It is corrupt. It is broken. It is fallen. It is wicked. That's what our hearts are. Praise God that he sent Jesus to fix this problem, Right? But even in the Old Testament, I want to go through this quickly, but even in the Old Testament, it wasn't just about keeping rules. There was also an element of serving and loving with your heart, Deuteronomy, which we call the Shema in Hebrew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, right? Or 1 Chronicles 28, 9, David says to his son, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart. Don't just keep all the rules, son. Make sure you keep the rules. No, love him with your whole heart. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Or Joel 2, 12 and 13 that says, yet, now, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Those are, those are things that happen when you have a right heart. When your heart is right, and it's not just about uh, the the perfunctory, the rules, the religion. When you have the right heart, it will lead you to these things, fasting and weeping and mourning. Because you'll see where your heart really is, that it is broken and fallen and no good. And you will pour yourself out, Lord, forgive me. I see your holiness, and I see my unworthiness, just as Isaiah did in chapter 6. He said, I'm a... I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. This is who we are, friends. And this is what Jesus was alluding to. It's not about the rules. It's about your heart. And by the way, your heart is corrupt. Let's finish our text. Mark 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, uh, coveting uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. This is the human heart. This is the human condition Jesus is trying to set up. So, so very quickly, this is, this is the case that Jesus is making in this this whole scenario with the Pharisees and then the teaching with the people and then the explanation with his disciples. He's saying, Pharisees, you're fake, right? You're corrupt. You care more about your traditions than you do God's commands. And because you're fake, because you're counterfeit, your worship means nothing. It's empty, hollow, Instead, focus on spiritual things. You're you're, you're hyper-focused on these physical things, these rules of man. But I've come to do away with that first covenant and and bring a new covenant in my blood. And you all have a spiritual problem. This is where Jesus is trying to get to here, right? As he's explaining it to the disciples, the problem is a spiritual problem. The problem is not a food problem. The problem is not a hygiene problem. The problem is a heart problem. And guess what? You can't clean it. You can't make it right. Has anybody ever told you before, hey, I know you're worrying about something, thinking about something, follow your heart. You ever heard that? I've said it at times. But can I just tell you, that's really horrible advice. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't just follow our hearts. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are fallen and broken. Jesus explained what comes out of our hearts. We follow God's heart. The text says to Jeremiah, who can understand it? Well, I'll tell you, that's God. Because he's the one that made it. He's the one that loves you enough to give his only son to die for you, to cover these evil and wicked things that come out of our hearts. And so Jesus is pointing here, the Pharisees trying to say, don't focus on the things that don't matter. Focus on the things that do. Don't focus on wrong things. Don't live your life thinking you can say one thing and live something else. Don't, don't, this morning, don't think you can just show up to church and check that off. I guess I'm good spiritually. No. It's just like washing your hands. It's about your heart. Where's your heart this morning? When you leave here, what does it look like in your life? Don't focus on external things or traditional things necessarily. Look at God's word, his commandment. Don't ignore the condition of your heart. Because can I just tell you? If you're like me, you need Jesus. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus, we have no hope apart from him. Romans 3.11 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Right, that's who we are. On our best day, That's who we are. On our best day, the Bible says, our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. On our best day. And yet, like the Pharisees, often we forsake God's law and we hold up what's important to us. We call ourselves holy at times and think we're in good position with God because we've defined what holiness or right living is by how we live, instead of by how God has defined it in his word. You better get your definition straight this morning. What you think about your holiness doesn't matter. What I think about my holiness doesn't matter. What does God think of your holiness? Because he sees your heart. He sees your life. And the only way we can have a clean heart and a forgiven heart is by the blood of Jesus. It's by the sacrifice that he has made for us. I want to close this with this this morning. I'm so grateful for I'm just so grateful for God's grace and his mercy and his love for me because I would not be standing here apart from those things. I am a sinful man and I have lived in sinful ways. But by God's grace and his mercy he has saved me and redeemed me. He has covered me. He is my only hope. And the question I want us to think about it before we go is this this morning. What does the fruit of your life reveal about the root of your faith? I'll say it again because I want you to really think about this. You know what I mean when I say the fruit of your life? What's, what's being produced in you? What's being produced in your home, and your family, and your browser history? What's being produced in your heart and in your mind? What's being produced in your life around you? Right? That's that's what we have to ask. Does the fruit of your life reveal, what does it reveal about the root of your faith? Because how we live will often say what we truly believe. Are you worshiping this morning? Do you understand? Are you grateful for the grace and mercy of God? Do Do you pour yourself out in worship and say, Lord, I am nothing and you've given me everything in Jesus? Or do you step back and go, I sure wish we were doing it this way, that way. I wish I could have it this way. I wish this would happen. Friends, be careful that you're not worshiping yourself instead of the king because that's what the Pharisees did and it's what we do often so easily. Daniel Lakin, he says this, there are two approaches to religion, each of which can be summed up in a single word, do or done. The world says the problem is out there and the solution is to answer the question with, what can I do? (laughs) I can fix this, what can I do? But the Bible says the problem is in here and the answer is what Christ has already done. You see, in legalism, we think better of ourselves than Jesus does, but in salvation, we think the same of ourselves as Jesus does. We know we're hopeless, helpless, Sinners in desperate need of a savior. What do you see today? What's on your heart? It's not just about all the rules and the functions. What it really comes down to is what where's your heart and what is the fruit of your life? There's nothing you can do to fix a sin problem. All we can do is surrender to Jesus. All we can do is say, Lord, you fixed it. It's already done. And Jesus died on the cross and he says, it is finished. It's done. He's done it. And we are the benefactors of that grace and mercy and sacrifice in his death. And so today we humbly come before him and worship and say thank you for what you have done. Can I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus? Not do you know the rules or the, the mores or the traditions or the things we're supposed to do. No. Where's your heart today? Because if you, and I've said this before, you don't, we can look back over our lives and we don't, we don't judge necessarily our lives by, by days or weeks. We judge it by years. Are there years and years and years of disobedience in your life? Years and years of addiction and brokenness and rebellion against God. Maybe you need to come before a holy God this morning as Isaiah did. And say, Lord, I see you in your holiness and I see me in my unworthiness. I need you to cover me. How can I I be here? And, of course, the angel comes over and covers him. Listen, Jesus is your covering this morning and your only hope. Do you know him as your Savior? Have you trusted him? Do you live for him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Have you surrendered your life? Because that's what repentance means. It's not just some magic prayer we pray and then never change our lives. No, it's a life that changes. A life of repentance saying, God, I trust you. I lean all of my weight, all of my life on the claims of Jesus and what he's done for me. That is salvation. And I want to walk it out the rest of my life. And if you've never done that, I I want you to know you can do it right now. You can do it this morning. And you can walk out of those doors forgiven and free. And man, will he change your life. Man, will everything change. What's the fruit of your life? What does it reveal about the root of your faith? Pray with me this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your truth. Lord, thank you for your grace. You are holy. And I pray that as we look at this story, we can see how convicting it can be, God, that we often can lose our way we can often elevate things that maybe shouldn't be elevated when really you've just said, obey me, follow me. Lord, forgive us. If we've begun to believe, begun to believe something, Lord, that is not true of your word, it's an additional extra biblical reality that we lean on and we hold other people to and we judge them by, God, forgive us. Help us to realize there's a plank in our eye when we're looking at a speck in theirs. God, would you help us to understand that church and religion is not about rules. It's about the condition of a fallen heart. And we all have fallen, broken, evil, wicked hearts. And our only hope for these wicked hearts is that we would know you, Jesus. That we would believe that you died for us that you will forgive us of our sins, Lord. You can change our hearts. You can give us a new life and a new direction. Lord, did you do that today? Is there somebody here, God, that is struggling with that question? I pray they would surrender even now to you. If they need to come up in just a moment as our team begins to sing a song, if they wanna talk with me or another elder, if they wanna pray right where they are, Lord, would you do what only you can do and would you save their soul? I pray that conviction is so heavy on their hearts right now, God, that their hearts, they're beating out of their chest and they don't even know what to do, but Lord, would you give them peace and that peace will only come through the presence of Jesus and the power of your spirit. Lord, would you save somebody today by your grace? And for those of us who've known you, May we be focused on the condition of our hearts based on our life in you. May the root of our faith be humble obedience, following, loving you, and making you known. God, that is our prayer today. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. As we worship you, Lord, may we do so with the right perspective of who you are and who we are. Move in us today, God, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.